Hello everyone and welcome to the OA 100 Pounders meeting. Today is Wednesday the 29th of December 2021 and with us today is the lovely Jackie W from Bushy. She joined the rooms in June 2008 and she has come to share with us her story today. Jackie it is over to you. Hi everybody I'm actually a Jacqueline. It's Jacqueline uh, my name is Jacqueline. I am a compulsive overeater. Um, whew, I'm really nervous. And as I'm sitting here, I feel like, you know, my nose is itching. I want a wee. It's like everything is my, all my unconscious is telling me to go somewhere else. But uh, uh, yeah, more about that later. Um, it's really, really nice to be here. I think I I, before the pandemic, I'd never been to an online meeting. I'd only been to face-to-face -face meetings. Um, as Lee said, I came into the rooms in 2008. Um, and I have this sort of mythical thing about there are 100 pounder meetings. We just don't have them face-to-face -face in the UK. And I am a 100 pounder. And I kind of always wanted to go to one because even though it's Overeaters Anonymous, I do, like it said in the beginning bit there I do feel like there's something about being more than 100 pounds as I was more than 100 pounds overweight that kind of and yeah I want to make myself different from everybody but I think there is there it felt to me that there was this other angle about overeating and that I could never hide it I never got away with it I never um, managed to conceal my overeating from other people um, and I know since coming in that, that that is not desirable either. I always used to have this fantasy, if only I could eat whatever I want and not put on weight. And I think I realised that I had kind of arrived and that I was actually reaching for recovery when I was working the steps initially. And I actually thought, I actually don't care about that anymore. I just want to stop compulsively overeating. It's not about the weight. It's about what. I realized was more about my compulsive overeating when I came in. Um, I think I'll just try and keep it simple because I can kind of jump all over the place and just do a little bit of a, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Um, what it was like, uh, actually Lee, do you wanna share the photos just briefly? Rita asked if I'd send some photos over. Um, and it was just to give, an idea that I was always, I'd always been big. I always, um, from a very young age, I started eating, I started binging when I was, well, I started overeating when I was really young and I started binging when I was about 14, when a kind of um, a child minder we had taught me that you could go into a shop and buy a big bag of food um, and bring it home and eat it. Or she showed me and we used to do that together when I was about 14. And my weight kind of went up and up and um I yeah this was just they don't have to be up for long it was just to show you that I'd always been um overweight and it was funny my husband had said in that picture at the end there's a picture of me and my husband and he said oh you make it look like it's the prize it's like you lose weight and then you get a husband and it's like that's so not it it was just that I was looking on my phone and it just I don't have loads of full-length pictures of myself and I just happened to have that one so I sent it over to Rita but also that was to show that that was five years ago and I'm roughly the same weight I am the same weight now as I was five years ago which is literally mind-blowingly unthinkable because when I came in in 2008 I had been binging for at that point 20 
since yeah 23 25 years or something like that and I'd been overeating um for more like 30 years uh I felt like there was you know again Risha asked me to do this six months ago it just the thought of still being abstinent it's like when she asked me I couldn't not eat for an hour I felt like as soon as the thought occurred to me then I would be eating if I it was like there was no pause in between it It, from when I was a very um yeah from when I was very young I would just I would hide food I would um even when I was sort of six or seven I'd go down to the newsagent which is like a sweet shop um and I'd always buy two things I'd never buy one I already knew that one wasn't going to be enough and I'd get two and I'd stuff one in on the way back home and then keep one to eat in front of other people and that um kind of carried on and it you know I felt the um the embarrassment when I was at school I was always like the biggest in my class um I remember once when we were at um a kind of activity camp when I was 14 uh, or 13 or 14 we went gliding which is like in a plane without an engine and the guy who was taking us said okay the limit is 13 stone ha 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 as if anybody of you would be over 13 stone but you know please tell me if you are because it's dangerous for you and the pilot if you're over 13 stone and I was 14 stone and I said nothing and it, because the humiliation of saying I weighed 14 stone in front of a class of people, I would rather die and take him with me <laughs> because uh, I couldn't even begin to imagine saying that in front of them. Um, and so it was just a kind of a life of, of, of concealment, um, but excitement, because every time I thought about binging, I'd get excited, you know, no matter how much I hated myself, my pattern was that I would you know I'd, I'd I don't know where to start the cycle but say it was in the morning I'd wake up I'd be full of you know uh, vows that I would never do it again I would be feeling strong if a little bit kind of carb hung over um, but as soon as I started eating I realized that I wouldn't be able to do anything about it I wouldn't be able to kind of stem stem the flow put anything in the way of the dam as it were and you know then I'd start planning what I was going to buy I'd go and buy it and you know the pulse would quicken the excitement would come more so in the planning than in the eating for sure apart from like the first few minutes and then I would start and I would feel just that kind of relentless inevitability of how miserable it was how how sick I'd feel and actually I used to I used to smoke by the time I got into my, I was quite a heavy smoker. I was smoking about 40 cigarettes a day, um, but also I would smoke marijuana to increase my appetite because I would be annoyed that I couldn't eat as much as I needed. So I'd smoke weed to get the munchies to eat. Not, it was just crazy because it was like, there was, there was nothing that I could get inside that would stop whatever it was that I wanted to stop. And I think before I came in, I didn't really know what that was. Um, when I was, um, just another bit about step one, when I was 16 or 17, 16, um, I developed an eye condition. I woke up one day with double vision um, and went to see my, G, my doctor, whose husband happened to be a neurologist, and he diagnosed me with this thing called um, idiopathic um, intracranial hypertension, which is basically an excess of spinal fluid, and it's brought on by, most likely by being overweight. Um, and it most happens in kind of obese teenage girls. 
And so I had a doctor telling me that if you don't lose weight, you're actually going to lose your sight. And I just kept eating. I was a full two stone heavier at my heaviest than I was when I first got diagnosed. Um, because it, no, it didn't matter. He could have told me, he could have just as soon as told me to fly to the moon, you know, on my own. I wouldn't have been able to do it just as I wasn't able to stop compulsively overeating. Um, and I basically carried on like that apart from when I was um, 26, 27, uh, this kind of very rapid weight loss diet came to the UK, which was kind of quasi doctor um, recommended, you had to go to the doctor and get a certificate to say that you could do it. And then there were forms of counselling within the group. So it was meant to be a bit of a departure from slimming clubs. And I've been to a lot of slimming clubs, you know, my mum, took me to a diet doctor when I was eight or nine. My dad took me to a slimming club when I was 12. Um, and I did this thing, which was basically eating, it was, it was what they call a very low calorie diet. You mix powder with water um, and you drink it three times a day and you don't eat any food, didn't eat any food at all. And that was the only time I was able to lose weight. And what happened was that I lost six stone, I think at the time, in a very short period of time. Um, and I was suddenly the weight I'd been when I was 10 years old. Um, I didn't know how to deal with it at all. As soon as I started eating food again, pretty much put it all back on and ended up doing that diet three times. Um, and it, it, in a way, it became like a bit of a safety valve for me. It was like, well, if I if I do it, because if I put on weight, I can always do the diet and then I can lose the weight again because I'd never been able to lose it before. And there was this thing that I could do. And um I think there was a lot of erroneous thinking that I wasn't aware of at the time. I just assumed that if you were thin, you just ate what you liked, but you were thin. I just couldn't conceive that kind of thin people had some sort of control or some sort of made decisions that were healthy for them. I just assumed that they felt the same as me, but they were just able to do it. So as soon as I came off these diets and I started eating again, I put all the weight on, I couldn't quite understand what was going on. Um, and in, in this period, I also stopped smoking. As I said, I was smoking 40 cigarettes a day, uh, and I managed to stop overnight. Like I just decided I was going to do it. I read a book, I put the cigarettes down and then I put on four stone in uh, four months. 10 minutes. Thank you. Thanks very much. And again, I heard that when you stop smoking, you put on 10 pounds. So I thought I'd put on 10 pounds. I didn't know that you actually had to, if you kept on eating, you'd put on more weight. And I put on four stone. And actually, within three weeks of stopping smoking, I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. I was probably 26 years old. Um, no, I wasn't. It was that was when I did that diet. I was, it was 2005, so I was 34 years old. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital because I had uh, a breakdown, basically, because I hadn't realized how much the cigarettes were holding me together and what putting them down and being without them would do to me. Uh, and when I was in that psychiatric hospital, I wasn't um, an inpatient, I was a day patient. My psychiatrist said to me that I should come to OA. Um, when I came out of the, of the facility, I did the diet again, uh, and I lost all the weight again. And I went to some OA meetings. I went to probably five or six in 2006. Um, and I just, I just heard a lot of people who were thin. So I thought, well, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. Um, talk about not eating sugar or something and I just thought I just don't know what this is I heard the word God and then I left I kind of 
stuck around for a few meetings, but I couldn't, I just couldn't get to grips with it. And inevitably I put all the weight back on. And in 2008, someone I met at this, where I was doing the diet, um, told me about OA again. And she said that she was going to a meeting in, um, in East Finchley in North London. And did I want to come? And I said, yes. And I went with her and I never saw her again. Um, but she gave me her brown book, which was the Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I think it was probably the second edition. You're giving away the third edition here. It was the second edition. She gave me her copy of that and she disappeared. And I, it was just so amazing because I then went to that meeting. I've been to that meeting pretty much every Sunday since 2008. And I arrived, I think when I just, um, when I arrived, um, in OA at that time, I weighed about 17 and a half stone, which is something in pounds. I don't know, 200 and something high, 30 something. And my heaviest, I was 265 pounds. Um, and yeah, I came in and I cried a lot and I listened to what people were saying. And it really blew me away because pretty much for the first time ever, it was that thing of hearing people say, what I did and they said it out loud and they said it in a room with other people and they laughed about it and they talked about the hiding the food and they talked about you know eating dinner before you go out for dinner and they talked about you know all the things that I used to do that I was so ashamed of um, and they just talked about it like it was really natural and I really felt that kind of welcome to Overeaters Anonymous welcome home and then the God thing came up again and I was really, I just remember having this reaction and just asking if someone could call me to talk to me about it because I felt like that there was this thing that was kind of being dangled in front of me that could be a solution but actually wasn't going to be a solution because it was going to be yet another thing that wasn't available to me that wasn't, but you know, it would be like just another diet that I couldn't do. Um, you know, I have this kind of stubborn refusal to do anything that's good for me out of a kind of misguided self-preservation. It's like too hard or what if it doesn't work or what if I get my hopes up or what if I'm disappointed or what, you know, all this sort of what if, what if, or yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Um, but I, the, the first, I would say that this being an OA is probably the first time I've ever actually done what was suggested. I kind of just came and surrendered to the best of my ability I surrendered to what I found here and I think it was actually the identification that got me here because I'd been I've been to loads of therapists or sorry I should say that kept me here I've been to loads of therapists who had told me what to do who had suggested what I should do you know if you feel like eating take a walk around the block if you you know things like that but it was only through coming here and just hearing people as I was saying, just the identification that really pulled me in. And when I first came in, I didn't read, I mean, I'm a big reader. I didn't read anything on the lower literature for at least a year. I would just read the Lifeline Sampler. I would read um, Overeaters Anonymous. I would just read and read and read just because I could not get enough of this kind of newfound identification. And I needed it. I really needed it because when I came in, I after the period where I cried a lot and thought it's not going to work for me, um, I 
tried to, to kind of get abstinent. I wasn't quite sure what that was for me. I ended up um, having, choosing like three meals a day and putting down recreational sugar. So being like, you know, confectionery and stuff like that. And I did it, but it was a real white knuckler, real white knuckle affair. And I lasted about two weeks. And I remember I asked someone to sponsor me and we had a date to meet and talk about step one. Um, and then I couldn't do it, couldn't do the food thing anymore before we met. Um, I had a three day binge and I remember going around to my friend's house and just crying and crying and just saying, I can't do it. I'm not gonna be able to do it. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. Can't do it. And the next day was my first day of abstinence, which was the 19th of July, 2008. And I'm still abstinent from that day. And I feel like it's really a cliche to say it's a miracle, but I, could, I couldn't go an hour. I just could not stop eating. And then I did, and then I did again, and then I did again. And I had, um, yeah, and then I met my sponsor and we started going through step one. And I definitely, the first time I went through the steps, I did it to the best of my abilities. I think I didn't really, I didn't really get the people, places and things. I kind of knew I was, um, I knew that I was um, powerless over food. Couldn't remember what it was there. What my powerless over? Couldn't remember that. I knew that I was powerless over food, but I couldn't quite get the grip of that I was powerless over everything else as well. Um, but it didn't really matter because that's all that's all it says in the steps that was powerless over food my life's become unmanageable and that was definitely true for me you know I couldn't in in the background of all of this I couldn't hold down a job um, I was in school and I had there was loads of um, could do betters um, I'd performed incredibly well till I was about 11 and then suddenly I kind of plummeted to the bottom of the class I left school without any qualifications um, you know, everything I would start, I would give up. I would give up every evening class. I would give up every everything that I ever started, I would give up. I was like brilliant at beginnings, terrible at middles, terrible. Couldn't understand the middle bit. Um, just wanted the ending, just absolutely loving the ending. Just let me walk away because I'm done. Um, like, And so when I actually came in to OA and actually started working the steps and I actually did it, it was, um, that in itself was a miracle and I found um for me the higher power a higher power in fact my higher power was something that brewed very very slowly it felt like a really kind of um a faint candle you know like a little flickery candle that could go out at any point because I did definitely for the first time understand the concept of hope in step two that it didn't have to be me just just even the being given abstinence made me believe in something because I knew I wouldn't be able to do it on my own um and it's something that I have I say I struggled with it for the next 30 I mean if I've been abstinent 13 and a half years now I've been struggling with it for about 13 and a half years because I feel that I'm not a traditional God believer I don't believe in a God in the sky but I do believe in the intuition that I have within me I have I do believe that I was born with with my higher power inside me already and that I it was always there for me to access but that I didn't want to access it I think I always looked down on people who believed in God and just thought they were a bit stupid um, and so I just you know through no fault of my own 
just covered it over with everything else, with my pride, with my ego, with loads of food, with loads of fear, and didn't want to access it because I didn't really know it was there anymore. And it was only by coming in, um, by by working the steps, especially steps, uh, especially step two, actually, it's just coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. A, that I needed restoring to sanity, and it wasn't just if only I could lose weight, only I could lose weight, then everything would be fine. It was actually realizing that all my relationships were a little bit broken, like everything was a little bit off. Um, that I would kind of go like a pinball in a machine. I'd kind of careen from situation to situation that was a bit awkward. You know, if you'd asked me how many people I'd want to avoid walking down the street, absolutely loads because of some weird, awkward thing. 20. Is that 20? Oh, thank you. Like some weird, awkward thing that I'd said, that they'd said, that I'd reacted too badly, that they'd reacted too badly. That just everything was just a bit off. Um, and that unmanageability, I hadn't really put together. I hadn't put two and two together at all. Uh, and it was being kind of guided through the steps, especially in my step four, and realizing I did it in the big book columns way, seeing it all laid out before me, just what my patterns were. And it really gave me the shock of my life, like to see that I actually repeated the same behaviors with a load of different people and they talk, you know, it talks about the new pair of glasses. I really felt like I saw the world in a new pair of glasses and subsequently then beat myself up for a good two years, probably. I mean, I did six and seven, um, not, it didn't take me two years to do six and seven, it didn't take me very long at all, but I kind of carried on that shame, I think, of being like hyper vigilant for all my defects and, really kind of entering into the kind of slough of despond about everything that was wrong with me and I can still really go into that and it's almost like every every share or every chair could end up like being a confessional for all the terrible things that I think um, or whatever all the all the kind of ugly character traits that I can display all the, the ego and the pride and blah 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 and I'm actually it took me probably a good 10 years I'm not a great advert, a good 10 years to understand about self-compassion, like, and not just self-compassion, but compassion for others, because I was always quite a kind of head-based, clinical, thought-based person, and, you know, that, that whole thing about the journey from the head to the heart is the longest one, I absolutely found that, because every, all of my compulsive overeating was about, I just didn't want to be troubled by feelings, I didn't choose it, it's just what got given to me, um, I would, I just didn't want to feel anything. I just didn't want to feel anything. And the food really helped me. The cigarettes helped me, the TV, endless. You know, I'd be smoking, watching TV, flicking through a magazine, eating. I'd be doing it all at the same time. And it still wasn't enough just because whatever it was that I wanted to block out, I wanted to block out. And they also, you know, when people, you hear people say, oh, I put down the food and the feelings came up. That did not happen to me. I, I held out, I think, for a few years, a good few years. Um, until I really connected with what was going on inside me. It did not happen overnight, but I really trusted that it would work. I found that I needed, the thing, also the thing that really occurred to me that really kind of hit home was um, reading the traditions and really understanding for the first time that I had a place within this structure I was, I'd always been very much, uh, well, someone else can do it. Ah, oh, someone else will do it. Like, always kind of thinking that someone else is going to be there to clear up 
not my mess, just the mess, <laughs> just all the mess. Someone would be there to sort it out. And I really kind of threw myself into service. Um, I went to intergroup fairly early, um, probably after about a year, I did a lot of meeting service. I was on the um, National Service Board of Great Britain and went to World Service a couple of times in Albuquerque. And really every single time that I did that, it was like paying back that thing that I couldn't repay because I was never sponsored. I, I could do a whole another half hour on sponsorship. I won't. Um, I, I find sponsorship quite difficult. Um, I do. I've always had sponsees and I always have had them all the way through, but it's something that doesn't come naturally to me as doing service. So I was always did more service than sponsorship. Um, and I really, and I really, the thing that I did most of was public information. So um, professional outreach, it was just the, because I'd been to so many doctors over the years who just hadn't been able to help me apart from that one psychiatrist. I've been to doctors. I remember sitting and crying in front of one of them saying, I just don't know what to do. And he just said, it's not rocket science, just eat less and move more. And I was like, yeah, I totally get it. I totally get why you would think that was the answer. And that is why you cannot help me because I need another compulsive overeater. I need all of you and all the sponsors I've had. I think I'm on about, I think I've had the same sponsor now for nine years, but I've probably had five or six sponsors. And I, I feel that every single one of them has given me something different and a different perspective. Um, and so I, yeah, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of talking to doctors, um, a lot of talking to doctors and nurses, just because I was so desperate, probably a little bit too desperate that everybody find uh, OA. In fact, I definitely went through a period when I came in of wanting to kind of fit everybody I knew into a fellowship. It's like, well, you need to go to AA and you need to go to SLA and you're obviously a gambler. And it was just that, that the control thing, you know, it's just thinking, not even directly wanting to solve their problems, but wanting them to do this, just so desperately wanting everybody to do this, um, which I have now let, mostly let go of. Um, and so, yeah, how it is now is that, as I said, I'm 13 and a half years absent um, and I've lost oh, whatever it is, 110, 115, 115 pounds. I had a lot of body issues when I lost weight because I found that I actually hated my body more after I'd let go of that weight than when I was fat, fat, I don't know, I don't know what the word is that is acceptable, but I was. Um, and I had um, an operation to remove the loose skin, which was something that I really debated for years. I just thought if I was God connected, I wouldn't need to do it. If I had any faith, I wouldn't need to do it. Like I kept trying to talk myself out of it, that if I trusted in God, if I believed in God, then I wouldn't need to have surgery. Um, and also I was so terrified of having it and then relapsing, just this fear of that I would do it and then I would immediately put all the weight back on just to teach me a lesson for being such a vain kind of shallow idiot. Um, and so there was a huge amount of fear attached to it. But I did, I debated for a long time and I ended up having it done in 2015. So six years ago. And I'm such a compulsive overeater. The first question I asked when I came around from surgery was how much did the skin weigh? How much did it weigh? Like, please God, tell me. And it was like nothing. <laughs> it was really like a pound or something. 
it was so disappointing because it was but the doctor said to me but it was literally just like skin there's no fat attached to it it's like I don't care that doesn't cheer me up <laughs> that's not what I wanted to hear um and it definitely and what was amazing about having that operation is it actually for the first time actually cured something just overnight it was like oh okay brilliant that's not here it didn't cause me loads of problems it just solved a problem in a really clean way um, and I had I mean I did freak out occasionally and I did go into fear but I believe because I took so long to think about it and I prayed a lot and I talked to people and I talked to people I had who had had it and I felt it was definitely despite all my fears a kind of God connected decision um, so I feel what what I love most about that now is I don't have to think about my body I think I was always so aware, aware of it, kind of the rubbing and the chafing and the how much, how much do I weigh, how much do I weigh? And like every time I saw somebody, is this somebody, how much, it was almost like the Terminator, I'd have this little um, display in front of my eyes telling me how much I weighed last time I saw them. Should I feel ashamed or should I feel happy? Should I feel, you know, like the number really dictating how I felt and the freedom that comes from the 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 abstinence and the but and the obviously the the lack of the food obsession but just the just just feeling just free free physically and all the rest of it I'm I'm aware that my time is probably nearly up um, and there is so much more that I could say Jean's unmuted you have a minute left a I minute. have a minute left um, there is so much I could say. I'm in two other fellowships now, or I've been through two other, I'm kind of currently in one, probably one other fellowship, but I have worked steps in a, in a third fellowship because I realized how much needed working on after I came in and worked the steps in OAOA alone wasn't quite enough for me. I wish it had been. It's my absolutely favorite home fellowship. Wouldn't If I had to keep one, it would be this because I know that all the other stuff is gravy as they say like I wouldn't give a shit about the other stuff if I was still in the food because I just still be eating I wouldn't care about anything else um I would say that all my relationships are better I think I have a lot of fear that you know part of the ego thing about doing a chair is this fear that someone's gonna is this imposter syndrome that people are gonna just gonna think ah oh, she's really sick she sounds really sick um and I think there's part of me that is a real massive overthinker and I will always kind of that thing I was saying about the step six and seven I will always kind of go in on myself and turn on myself about all the things that aren't right and oh, I don't do enough and I don't you know I'm not doing the same service as I used to and I'm not I haven't done anything beyond group for about two years now I'm not doing this I don't do a written step 10 um, that often I don't I'm shit at meditating like really bad but I kind of find myself walking down the street and talking to God just out of nowhere. I feel like a troubling thought and I will just say the word, I'll just suddenly hear myself saying the word God out loud. And my friend used to say to me, if you want to pray and you're with other people or you're like on the street, you just take your phone out and speak into your phone so people don't know, I don't care anymore. I'll just walk down the street and just start talking to myself. That's um, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jean. You. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up. But yeah, I start talking to myself very quietly, but I'll just do it now. I don't care really what anybody else thinks. Um, amazingly, I could go on, but I won't. Um, just really incredibly grateful and very pleased to be here and lovely to see everybody. 
Thank you so much, Jacqueline. And I asked my high power to help me pick out um, a random part of the big book that would be fit in. And this is what my higher power chose. And it's from There Is A Solution. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the levelling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionised our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves.